0: of ourselves that begins on the first day of the new year, culminating in the Passover then, of course, on the 14th. This year we do have again, which occasionally happens, a Passover on Wednesday evening, the 4th of April. I might note that there are several people who... Uh, Will be coming out for the Passover season. Who have never been out here before, and uh, there are some health issues involved, especially with uh, with the Hubbles, with Sheila. And uh, she wants to make the trip very much so. So uh, let's be praying that they are able to make it out here. They wanted to come last feast, and her health just would not allow it. Uh, but now they are planning on coming if at all possible, for the Spring Holy Days. So you might keep them very much in mind, as well as others who are traveling. And there are several who will be here who have never been here before, and I look forward to that. It's very exciting always when you see people's minds open and they simply have to hear everything that we have heard over the last years. I talked to a lady last night that I've seen once, or not last night, but yesterday, And uh, she's been on our website now for about almost a year. And she says, I believe I have heard every sermon on there. So she's listened to hundreds of them in the past year. That's several a day. And uh, another one expressed to me, who's fairly new to what we're teaching, that she's like a kid in a candy store. She gets started on one sermon and then gets sidetracked to another and then another because it's like opening a new book in a way uh, seeing the things that we have been seeing in Scripture that God has opened to our understanding, and not because we're anything, but I think for His purposes, He's putting this information out there for the few who at this point will have their minds opened. But it is a very interesting thing. He, people completely ignore it, or as it opens, they see... And they just can't seem to get enough. And uh, that is encouraging and exciting. I don't expect many to at this point, but the few that do, uh, it is a very encouraging feeling that comes. I had, this week was quite interesting in a way. I had several things that were very encouraging to me in, in an overall sense that occurred. Oh, five or six of them I listed yesterday afternoon that had happened in the last week or ten days that I don't know there's anything too especially except that for it all to come within a week's time or so, um, I couldn't help but notice a little pattern there and I I hope that it's something encouraging that uh, might be ahead for us. One very interesting one yesterday, I I'm still shaking my head. I had a lady that I grew up with, her children, uh, went to high school with, and to college with, to some, with some of them. And uh, I had not heard or talked to, from her or talked to her in 50 years. And she called yesterday. Interestingly, she had crossed my mind. Oh, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I guess. I wondered was she still alive. I knew her husband had died quite some years back. And uh, lo and behold, she called. She's 98 years old, and her mind is sharp as a tack. And she said, I called you because I had a dream about your dad last night. Uh, it was strange, uh, in a way. Uh, she said, your dad was had a great big car, and it was full of people, and he was taking them to a meal at the feast. Now, that doesn't sound to have any great ramifications in a way. Of course, Dad's been dead 12 years or thereabouts. Uh, But it was vivid enough to her that after all these years, she found out how to get hold of me and called me to, to, to tell me about that dream and to catch up a little bit on her family in the past and our family and so on. We hadn't had contact in all those years. Why call me? <laughs> well, she thought mom was dead and, and she knew dad was. But I thought, well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Dad is dead and if he's going to take people to dinner to the feast, it's probably going to be in the world tomorrow uh, when Christ is here. And he's resurrected and would be helping people learn about God's truth and the millennium, which the feast pictures. But it was interesting that she saw fit to call me as the eldest son of the family, I guess, and one that she knew well uh, years ago, and tell me about that. Now, this may not be all that exciting and interesting to you, but for me, something, someone I hadn't heard from in 50 years, it was quite interesting, and then the fact that it came as a result of a dream. And two or three people other than that have told me about dreams they've either had recently or long ago uh, this past week that might or might not have significance. I don't know. We'll see uh, if there's any meaning there. But I found it interesting that not just one of these things, but several sort of happened this week. And for what it's worth, we shall see. I won't go into all that right now. Well, let's get back today to the Psalms. We finished uh, the second division or book of the Psalms last week, and much of that had to do with the trials and troubles of David uh, along with those of Christ and the things that he went through very obviously as you go through the context and some of the specific prophecies about Christ and things that would happen to him did occur exactly. As they are listed in the Psalms. And of course, we can see the trials and troubles of our own lives uh, trying to serve God as David and Christ did, and having less success by far than Christ, obviously. Uh, Sometimes I think we're a little more like David, but uh, we have had troubles and difficulties. But it was. Very encouraging in chapter 72, showing that the Father is going to give the Son the kingdom, and He'll have dominion over the seas and the earth and the entire world and universe for that matter. And ended on a very positive note, and it says then at the last verse, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Uh, It wasn't the last psalm by any means that David would write. Uh, He wrote most of the rest of the psalms through 150 that we will read. Uh, But that particular section at that time was ended, and much was added later on. We're almost halfway through them here. Now, we have used the information given by some commentators in this series to show that there is a possibility that The five books of the Psalms equate to the first five books of the Bible. And the troubles and trials of the Exodus, certainly, and the trials and troubles of David and Christ and us are somewhat recounted in book two, and even mentions of the Red Sea and so on, and the difficulties and the deliverance of God that was needed. Now, we come down to Psalm 73 in the third book, And if that analogy is correct, and it may be along with others as well, uh, that it would equate somewhat to Leviticus. Now, The commentators say that this particular section has to do overall with the prostration of Israel. That is, uh, to put it in uh, smaller words, I guess, Israel knocked on their tea kettle, uh, laid back flat. Uh, by conditions and circumstances and their sins and the difficulties they had and what God had to do with them. Now, let's understand that in terms of the beginning of the book of Leviticus. Remember Jeremiah 7.22 that God did not speak to Israel of sacrifices and that type of law when they were delivered from Egypt or Mitzrayim. But He did later on, add the animal sacrifices and a whole pile of various statutes that they had to keep that were very difficult for them. They made life much more difficult. And I think that is a key to understand when we approach this third section of Psalms in relationship to the church today and how difficult life has become on a spiritual level within the Church of God and all its branches. I kind of had a thought that was interesting this morning along those lines. In this, that prior to 1972 and leading up to it, because of what we thought were 19-year time cycles that... From the beginning of the church through 19 years and 19 years, some of you will remember that history, uh, that the tribulation would begin in 1972, and that Christ would return in 1975. Those were the dates that we came up with, hence the booklet 1975 in Prophecy, uh, indicating that Christ might return in that year. It turns out that did not occur, but... If the tribulation had begun in 72 as projected prior to that time, and Christ had returned in 75, then we would have been glorified, right? In 75, allegedly at the Feast of Trumpets. Now, when Israel came out of captivity in Mitzrium, they were delivered with a great deliverance from there, and immediately began to murmur and complain and Uh, depart into idolatry by the time they reach Sinai, shortly thereafter, probably at Pentecost time. And then God laid, because of their idolatry, all of these sacrifices and statutes upon them, which existed until Christ came. And now they still exist in principle, but we don't have to physically go through all those things that they went through. It is interesting that we were not glorified when we, way back then, projected we might be, but it's been almost 40 years now since that time. Now, they did not go right into the promised land when they came out of captivity because they did not have the right kind of attitude toward God. They instead wandered for 40 years while their carcasses fell in the deserts. And we were not glorified when we thought we would, and the church began to go downhill very quickly after that. I, I think I saw attitudes of Laodiceanism cropping up even in the college in the late mid-60s when I was there, and I was part of that. But it began to go downhill with ministerial rebellions and defections and various things, in the mid to late 70s, and then uh, the rise of Stanley Rader and Joseph Tkach and various others uh, began to appear. The state of California invaded and took over uh, the church in 79, and it was kind of downhill from then on. Herbert Armstrong was dying in the 80s and finally did in '86. And the church went into almost total apostasy at that time, back into Protestantism, except those daughters who came out as bits and pieces and tried to uphold truth to one degree or another. Now, we have been in a sad say, sad state now for almost 40 years. I find that interesting that we looked for greatness and glory by 75 just as they looked for going into the promised land when they came out of captivity, and then because of attitudes, it didn't happen. And because of our attitudes, now we have been in confusion and frustration now for almost 40 years, since 1975, and now we are hoping that our glory is not too many years hence, that we be delivered from the troubles we're in. And God laid a lot on Israel because of their slack attitude toward him. And the same occurred in the early New Testament church. It began with strength and power, and because of different attitudes of different ones, it slowly sank into mediocrity and finally almost disappeared in well under a hundred years. It lasted really only about 70 years until... John the Apostle wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation in the 90s. The church hadn't begun till the mid-30s. So within 70 years, the church was almost gone. And the same has been true of worldwide in this end time. So the parallels are there between what happened to ancient Israel, what happened in the early New Testament church, and now what has happened here in the end time church. Well, this should get our attention. So then as we go into this book, if it represents, in that sense, Leviticus and what God laid on the people at that time, let's think of it, as we go through here, in terms of what has happened with us and why. And the length of time is quite interesting in parallel with that. So beginning in Psalm 73, a very positive statement is made. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Now, we have seen through all the prophecies that God is looking for a devoted, clean, uh, dedicated, committed heart in us. He wants us to worship Him with our whole heart. So He says, I'm good to Israel when they're that way. But immediately then almost as immediately as coming across the Red Sea, there is a contrasting statement made. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well near slipped. So we had become, after essentially building Pasadena up, the church being built in the 50s and 60s with great numbers of people coming The fine physical edifices, along with the spiritual edifice, the church having been built. Uh, I witnessed the building of the Ambassador Auditorium, the gymnasium of the administration building, and all those fine buildings that were put up during that period of time, uh, 60s, early 70s. It was quite impressive, really, that some small little radio church could come to the point of putting up that impressive uh, physical plant and then the jet airplanes and traveling all over the world and visiting kings and uh, rulers of various nations, prime ministers and presidents and so on. Now, again, God's church in the end time, the real end time, is going to be not necessarily invited or by their way into seeing the rulers of the world, but will be brought before them The scriptures make it very clear. And there will be contention and a real fight going on in this last round. Not a friendly discussion as it was with Herbert Armstrong. It will be entirely different this last round. But we did begin to slip and to slide and to take it for granted. Yes, we were still going through the motions. We were still keeping the feasts. We were still going to... Uh, keeping Sabbath, going to church, and so on and so forth. So we were going through the motions, but our hearts were not in it. And I think the feast is a good representation of that. The sermons were not, in some cases, all that inspiring. And in many cases, if they had been, nobody really wanted to listen because they had their bathing suit on under their clothing or their tickets already bought and ready to go to the next uh, country music uh, performance in, in Brandon. I didn't say that. Branson. Uh, but I'm getting old, forgive me. Uh, or, you know, the cocktail lounge was open on the cruise liner. Whatever. Our minds really were more on self and entertainment, even at the peace, than they were truly on God. So, I think this is true. Had we had our attitudes and minds right, everything would have been fine. But we're more like verse 2. As for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well near slipped. We had taken on or not gotten rid of so much of the culture of this world and its ways and its thinking and its customs. We hadn't gone back to Christmas and Easter maybe, but to its fashions, to its music, to its entertainment, to its ungodly things. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, it's easy to be turned by the lights, the glamour, the Hollywood, the whatever of this world, and look to that and think, well, that's exciting. And you look at the wicked around, what they're doing, and they seem to prosper for the most part. You know, look at this nation. They just got richer and richer, it seemed, and built their McMansions. Most of God's people are still living in old houses or small houses or whatever, mobile homes, and the the people around us, how could they afford all these McMansions of the last 20, 25 years? Yet, we've seen this all around us. People driving all their fancy new cars and this and that. So they look prosperous. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They seem to be doing okay. And you know, most of them still think they're doing okay, even though the thing is changing rapidly before our very eyes. There's no bands in their death. They don't have anything to worry about. The ones that are religious think they're going to go to heaven when they die. And even if they're not very religious, they still think they're going to heaven when they die. Now, our death has some bands involved, doesn't it? We have the band of judgment to look forward to. God's judgment on whether we're to live eternally or not. So, we approach death in a different way than they do. In one way, it is not that big a deal to us because we know there is truly a resurrection. But on the other hand, it is a big deal to us because we want to be in that resurrection and not miss out on it. So there are some restrictions in our lives that the world simply doesn't have. There are some factors we have to consider daily that they don't worry at all about, do they? They're not concerned about it. But we have to be. So, we have our human nature. We have our difficulties. Our feet almost slip. We have troubles, trials, tribulations, temptations, and difficulties. And it's hard. And the world doesn't have to deal with those things the same way we do. The, right, the people around Israel didn't have to deal with it either, did they? They didn't get receive God's sacrificial laws and all those things they had to do, the world around them seemed to be doing fairly well. So it was easy to go the way of Baal and the way of idolatry because it was an easy way, just like it is today. It's hard to do what we need to do instead of what we want to do, is it not? They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. What do you mean other men? Well, it's mostly the wicked and just a few righteous. They don't have the same troubles and trials and tribulations we do by any means. Therefore, pride compasses them about as a chain. They are so proud of themselves, of what they have, of what they do. Violence covers them as a garment. They can lie, cheat, steal, murder. The ones in charge of governments and so on do this continually. They don't live by God's laws, whatever. They just do what is convenient to make them rich, wealthy, and powerful. That's all they're concerned about. Their eyes stand out with fatness. I guess it gets the fat, their eyes bug out. They have more than the heart could wish. We are the most wealthy nation that has ever existed on the face of the earth. And we're Israel. We're the leader of Israel, I think, is Ephraim. So, yes, we have had the fatness and the wealth. More than anybody in past history or on earth today could have dreamed about was the American dream. Fast becoming a thing of the past, but it has been. And we have been a part of it. Our hearts would swell with pride when we heard songs about America. Is that a thing of the past? Well, I hope it is with us. We're not supposed to be proud of anything. Anyway, verse 8, they are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Can't happen here. No problem. Now, isn't our nation in about the same position we were in in the church 25 years ago? Well, we're going to go to a place of safety. Everything's going to be fine. It can't happen to us. Our nation will always survive. There will always be an American hero that takes care of us. And we may get in trouble, but we always stand up bravely and we fight and we win. That's been our attitude. And we were spiritually proud the same way. Now, what has God done? He's knocked us flat of our back. Just like... The comment about Israel being prostrate. Prostrate. They set their mouth against the heavens, verse 9. God isn't paying any attention. God doesn't know. God's dead. This is us. Their tongue walks through the earth. So they'll talk against God in heaven and man on the earth. And put themselves above. Anyone else. And anyone who truly tries to seek God is certainly Uh, dealt the sharp tongue of the wicked. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. They just keep returning to the evil way, the wrong culture, the ungodly approach of Satan's society on this earth. And it is tempting, is it not? For God's people, because it does seem like fun. And you know what? Sin is fun. you ever noticed that? Sin is fun. That's why the Bible speaks of the temporary pleasures of sin. It won't turn out fun in the end, but temporarily sin can be a rush, it can be exciting, it can be fun. So they keep going back to it. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? See, God hasn't actively intervened to this point. So they say, where's God? He don't care. He doesn't care, to use proper grammar. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. They think everything's fine, everything's going to go on. Even our economic mess today, they think it's going to get solved. Everything will be fine. Truly, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. So it's easy for us to say, you know, all this trouble, this difficulty, overcoming, growing, trying to pray, trying to study, trying to be what I ought to be. It's difficult. It's hard. And I've just all done it in vain. Because it doesn't seem like we're ever getting the blessings. The world does. They have everything I want. We don't. Look at us. you think these scriptures aren't all repeated over and over again for a purpose? We're going through the exact same thing they did before Noah, before uh, going to the promised land 40 years after wandering in trouble, and the heathen around them seemed to prosper. Early New Testament church, same story. We rehearsed that at the beginning. But you see it over and over through here. Verse 14, for all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. God works on us, works on our attitudes, chastens every son whom he loves and so on. And the church has been scattered and chastened. And all our beautiful homes, church homes, have essentially been destroyed as we see in other prophecies. If I say, I will speak this way, behold, I should offend against the generation of your children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. It's painful to watch the wicked seemingly prosper around us. But then when we really step back and look at what God is doing, where he's headed, then we see hope for the future and it gives us strength to move forward. Because we understand where they're going to end up in tribulation, trouble, and death, and we have opportunity to escape that. Surely you did set them in slippery places. You cast them down into destruction. So we're coming then to uh, prophecies that are about to be fulfilled before our very eyes because through some of this context that we'll be reading, It shows the heavens and the earth being moved and things getting worse and worse. And the end of the age, frankly, is talked about here because it talks about the ultimate end, where they are going to end up and where we will end up if we're faithful to God. They are in a very slippery place. They just don't know it yet. Some Americans are beginning to wake up. That's all going to go away for us. We will be destroyed by the beast and the false prophet. And then they're going to come up with their new world government and their new world order and things are going to be so rosy looking, they're going to think they're going to have a thousand years of millennial peace with the, what they'll think is the Christ, but we'll know is the Antichrist. But it will be very short-lived and fall apart. It is not going to happen. They're in a slippery place even though they think that they will be rock solid and that peace will finally come to the earth. No, it won't until Christ returns, the true Christ. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. This is what is coming to the wicked. As a dream, when one wakes up, so, O Eternal, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Now, the portrayal here is that Christ or God is asleep, isn't paying any attention, as they say up above. How does God know? He's asleep, he's gone way off, or he got old, or whatever, so we're on our own down here. So it's going to be suddenly like they awake out of a dream, and God is suddenly awake and will despise what he sees their image. It'll be an image of a beast. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant, I was as a beast before you. So we realize, you know, we can think humanly, but when we wake up to true spiritual reality, as the world will, but it's going to be a very painful process. It pricks us in our heart and our conscience to know that our feet have almost slid and that we have been in trouble as human beings. Especially in our spiritual lives. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have held me, me by my right hand. Now, to us, God has portrayed himself as turning his face from us. He's portrayed himself as being asleep and he's going to wake up. He's going to stand up, as it says there in Zechariah as well. So he portrays himself in Scripture as one who's not paying attention or cannot stand to see what he's seeing. But there is encouragement in that, in that even though it's as if I'm ignoring you for a little while and I can't stand to look at the way you are, still in all, he has us by the hand. He has not forgotten us. He said he's doing this for our good. The church is going through what it's going through for its good, that we might repent. The world, the nation around us, our nation, is about to go into the same thing, utter destruction, as has the church. We've been preaching that now for over 16 years, since that knowledge came to be understood. And how those scriptures all apply first to the church and secondarily to the nation. And we've seen the destruction and division and splitting and uh, apostasy continue now to this day and still does. And now we see the nation right on the verge of breakup, confusion, frustration, and destruction as we saw it happen in the church. So I think that events are bearing out that what this group has been teaching, preaching, and understanding now for over 16 years is indeed the correct view of what is going on. And we're going to see the healing of a faithful remnant to come back and rebuild the temple, the church, and perhaps even a physical temple as well, even as Herbert Armstrong did. That was the pattern in the early church, the former temple. Herbert Armstrong built a spiritual body and he built a physical temple as well. A house for God, he called it. I do not think that it will be any different for the final, latter temple as well. That it is, first of all, a spiritual organism, but I do believe at this point that there will be physical buildings, a temple, e.g. Ezekiel's temple, uh, built here at the end, followed by Jerusalem which must be built within the 70 years allocated in the 70-year prophecy there in Daniel 9. So, there is a lot of work ahead. And for those who do repent, get their hearts straightened out, God will guide us with His counsel and receive us to glory. Is this an end-time prophecy or what? No one has been received to glory except he which came down, Christ himself, to this very day. Now, this was written thousands of years ago, and now, thousands of years later, James, Peter, John, Jude, Luke, they're all in their grave. David is. They haven't been glorified. So this is talking about the end time and the resurrection. It's what these prophecies all point to. So it's not just ancient history. It's prophecies for those things that are about to occur within the very next few years. So, the whole context here, then, is about us, isn't it? Because we're the final fulfillment. We're the last generation before glorification. So, if it had meaning for anyone in the past, it has even more meaning for us in the final, grandest, climactic events that are about to occur. So we are the final fulfillment of these things. It is more meaningful for you and me today than it has ever been for anyone who ever read it before. Okay? This is important. This is exciting, if we really understand it. He's speaking of the first resurrection here. And the man who wrote this... Maybe in that very resurrection, but he's waited, as Hebrews 11 says, for you and me in the grave, not there yet, recognizing it ahead, but not seeing it. The early apostles, the first New Testament church, thought it was coming in their day, but it didn't happen. Now we know, do we not, that it's coming in our day. I think that has become very obvious and undeniable by world events and by what has happened within the church today. So, it's for us. Let's understand that. We're not reading the Psalms just for inspiration or betty By, We're reading it because it's very alive, very real, and is talking directly to us here as the last fulfillment. And brethren, we are supposed to be the best fulfillment. We're supposed to rise above what any of our ancestors did. I mean in terms of all Israel and of the churches in the New Testament. We are supposed to be higher in spiritual understanding and execution than ever worldwide Church of God was. We have to do better than what was done back then. Because the latter temple is to have a greater glory than the former temple. Whether you want to think of the former temple as Solomon's or Herod's, or the early New Testament church, or Herbert Armstrong's, reenactment of the temple of God. Whichever it's referring to, the latter one has to do with the end-time church, the two witnesses, and the end-time events. And it has to have a greater glory than anything which has preceded it. God is throwing down the gauntlet to you and me to rise above, spiritually speaking, anything that has been done heretofore. Now, there are notable examples, a few of them, in the past that he has told us to look to. Many of those are listed in Hebrews 11. And that is why, he tells us in the book of Malachi, that we are to turn our hearts to our fathers. And I gave a whole series on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the spiritual fathers of the past that God founded Israel on, That would project into the end time in the millennium as God's people, whether they were physical Israelites or later on spiritual Israelites, no matter what the physical race. That's why we are to turn to our fathers, to those who did well in the past, and use them as an example of what we are to be, not those who sinned and went into idolatry and had to have their carcasses drop in the desert. But that is exactly what's happening today, brethren. And I think that's why this is close to now 40 years since these things started, the church started going downhill. And God even says in those end time prophecies there in Haggai, Zechariah, and some other places that only a few old men would survive to compare the glory of the latter temple with the former. Because for the most part, the church is dying out. And God is only working, essentially, with the older generation. He has not called many of our children. They have a head knowledge of the truth they grew up with, but not the heart. They have not been converted. They've had head knowledge they didn't know what to do with. And they've kind of slowly just sort of dissipated and departed from it. And many of those called are not being chosen. So whether they're physically dead or spiritually dead is essentially the same. And this thing has gone on now with God having called this generation. A few of our children, not very many, but essentially the older generation he has worked with. Now, a few he has called, yes, and I think they're truly converted, but not very many. As we could attest if we start asking people throughout the church, what about your children? Are they in the church? Are they converted? No, not for the most part. A few are. But by the time this thing winds up, the overall population of the church is going to be quite elderly, and we're getting close to that. I look out here and I see more gray than I do any, or bald, than I do any other color. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. What is there on this earth that is worthwhile, that is everlasting, that will be around when all this around us we see is gone my flesh and my heart fails but god is the strength of my heart and my portion forever so we can look at ourselves and we can see faults we can see weaknesses we can see discouragement and frustration we can see trials troubles difficulties and pain of all kinds can't we We're familiar with those emotions and those difficulties, but we continue to look to God. That's all we can do. That is our hope. Because we have committed, we have chosen a course, and we must see it through. We can't give up on it, so we have to turn and look to God. And that's why He's putting us through all this, is that we might turn and look to Him. And it's not easy. For, lo, they that are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all them that go a-whoring from you. The whole world essentially has gone after a different God, after Satan and after his society, and only a few are willing to serve the true God. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the eternal God, that I may declare all your works. So we have this difficulty, our feet nearly slipping, doubt, discouragement, all kinds of troubles. And yet God has called us to a great purpose, to fulfill his purposes in the end, and we want to declare his works, not ours. What do you have to declare? Anybody want to come up here and declare their works? I certainly have none to declare. But God is going to do some great works, and we can declare His. That's what's just ahead of us. Let's put ourselves in a position to be able to declare His great works. Let's go on to chapter 74. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Well, He hasn't forever, has He? But boy, it seems like forever some days, doesn't it? Like this will just never end. It's only been going on really since Herbert Armstrong died in 86. And the, the seeds of destruction and everything were planted long before that. But it just seems like it's just gone on and on and on. And even the work that we have to do coming here seems to have lapses and waiting periods. And it's easy to become discouraged or frustrated to thinking, oh well... We have to move on, but it can be frustrating. And it seems like it's just going to go on like this forevermore. It won't, but it seems like it, okay? That's what he's saying here. It's an emotion. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? You know, we're your sheep, God. Why are you so angry at us and beating us about the head? Well, he is, though, isn't he? He's scattered us. He's destroyed it. The shepherds were not what we were supposed to be, and the sheep were not what they then were supposed to be. So the shepherds and the sheep have been scattered. That's what's happened. And he has smoked against the sheep of your pasture. I was accused of beating the sheep. Well, who's beating the sheep right now, brethren? God Almighty is the one beating the sheep. He is the one whose anger is smoking against the church for our Laodiceanism. And all I do is preach what he says to this end-time church. Excuse me, clock, I nearly knocked you over. He's the one that's been angry with the shepherds and the sheep both. And it seems like his anger is smoking forever. So there is an acknowledgment of God's anger here at us today, the end time just before glorification, okay? His anger smoked against them in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died, save uh, Caleb and Joshua. And their children went in. Now, He's not going to do that with us. Our children will go into the millennium, that promised land. But we have to go into the eternal promised land. And he's putting us through it now so that we don't die spiritually and our carcasses fall spiritually, but that we survive. Many of us will die physically, but spiritually we survive. So then the plea is recognizing that God is frustrated and he is the one who is putting this on us. Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old. Now, we are the last generation, spiritually speaking, in this age. And he purchased us of old. We've just gone through the crucifixion of Christ in these last psalms, the last book or section. And what he went through to purchase us, to buy us back from the devil. So he says, remember that you purchased us of old, the rod of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion, wherein you have dwelt. Well, Zion is pictured as the church in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. It also is a physical location. They can't find it in the Middle East, but it is a location somewhere, the true Zion, the original Zion. That's where he's going to dwell again. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. So, the true Mount Zion, the church has become desolate. And if we are to believe Jeremiah and Isaiah and some other scriptures, Ezekiel, even the original Jerusalem and Zion have been left desolate for many generations. He's lifted his feet up, they have been perpetual desolations over a long period of time, in other words. And even the church itself went through. I think, and the analogy fits perfectly, if Zion and Jerusalem represent the early New Testament church, as Paul said it did there in Hebrews 12, it had died out pretty much by 100 A.D. and was in desolation through all the Middle Ages up until the 1930s when Herbert Armstrong raised up the truth once again, as God began to give him knowledge and truth. So, the church, spiritually, has been in a long, desolate period, and so has physical Jerusalem and Zion, without anyone dwelling there. They will soon, because God is causing a regeneration, a renewal, A remnant to come very shortly to build the spiritual and, I believe, the physical temple again in the original site of Jerusalem and the promised land. That is what is just ahead. And the cities of Judah will be let desolate no longer. Nor will Jerusalem and Zion. He has dwelt there, but they've been perpetual desolations even all that the enemy has done wickedly in the sanctuary. I think that the original Jerusalem was laid waste and basically destroyed shortly after Christ and the apostles died out. And so did Jerusalem, and it's been desolate ever since, just as the early New Testament died out and has been desolate until now. And our first attempt here in the end, the former temple under Herbert Armstrong... And I think he and Ted were, uh, as Herbert Armstrong told me, an end-time fulfillment of Joshua's and Zerubbabel there in Zechariah, but not the final one. Certainly the story matches between Herbert Armstrong being an essentially righteous leader and his son being a wastrel, essentially. But it wasn't the final chapter. That has to be done again with the final leadership in place and the final conversion of the full last remnant that has to occur. So I think the Armstrongs were a type but not a final fulfillment by any means. That has yet to come. And it isn't far off. So... The enemy has done wickedly in the sanctuary. The sanctuary is to be cleansed, according to Daniel. That's an end-time prophecy, sealed up till the end. And here we are at the end, and we're beginning to understand what has to be done. Now, if God's opening understanding to that, aren't we the ones who are supposed to be there on the scene helping do it? I think so. So we have a lot of responsibility, a lot of weight put on our shoulders. Your enemies roar in the midst of your congregations. They set up their banners for signs. If anybody truly does what God wants, the other daughters of the church are not going to like it, and they all set up their own sign or their own banner to proclaim how great they are and how they're the only ones. We cannot take that position, brethren, if God chose us to be a prep crew, has come out to the right area to begin to prepare a place, then it's not us, it's not our organization that is righteous. It is that we have been chosen to be builders, janitors, whatever, to get it prepared. And then the righteous are going to come from all the groups. They're going to come from their own living rooms where they are alone. God will stir them to come. He will stir up people who would never recognize this place or us as being important in any way to God. But they will be stirred to come. And I do believe He's shown us the right place to be. So they set up their banners about how they are the only living church or the only... Philadelphian church, or the only this or that church, whatever they claim to be, I chose for us a congregation of God on purpose. Not the most very elect only church of God, not the Philadelphia, not the only living or whatever, but just one of God's congregations. That name, I think, is fitting because I don't want us to feel like we're more important than anybody else because we're not. We've been given knowledge to do a job. That's what. But not because we're any better than anyone else. Because as for me, my feet were slipping and I was well nigh dead spiritually, I'll tell you that. And I have had to change a lot and I have a lot more changing to do. Verse 5, a man was famous according as he had lifted up axes upon the thick trees. Herbert Armstrong is the one who built the church here in the end time. And he was well known, especially in the church and even in the world, and became somewhat famous And the Vienna Orchestra and various ones came to Ambassador Auditorium to perform. And we became known as a rich church. We became known as cultural. We became known as, in some ways, important to the leadership of the world, if not to the average man in the street. So he lifted up the axe. That's symbolic of building, getting materials. And even in Haggai, when it talks about building the final temple, or the former and the latter, well, it's talking about the latter there. It says to go up into the mountains and get wood to build the church. So, in the end time, God uses this analogy, just as he does here in the Psalms, which is about the end time. Herbert Armstrong was famous for building the church. But now they break down the carved work thereof, at once with axes and hammers. And boy, did they tear up the church in a hurry when it happened, didn't they? Didn't take long. So, Herbert Armstrong built it, and the Tkachas and others tore it down. They have cast fire into your sanctuary. They have defiled by casting down the dwelling place of your name to the ground. It was called the house for God. The building with his name. Now it has to be God's final temple built in his name, the temple of God. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them together. They have burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. Didn't we see the church just fall apart? Didn't we see the congregations destroyed, decimated? I went to many a few years back, and I I remember particularly there in West Palm Beach talking about the Miami church and the ones around in southern Florida where I had been the pastor in the uh, mid to late 60s. And they said we only have about 10% left. I mean, when you combine all those who had survived, whether it was United or Philadelphia or Living or whatever. If we got them all together now that have survived, that was back in the late 90s, we would only have 10%. Is this true or what? They've torn down the churches, the congregations. We see not our signs. We used to have signs to look to, didn't we? 1972, 1975. Then they switched it to 82 and so on and so forth. There's no more any prophet. No one understands, it seems, what's going on. Only a very few. Neither is there among us any that knows what, how long. How long, O Lord, Habakkuk said. And we wonder, how long? I don't know how long. I know the events that have to occur. I know what we need to do spiritually. But I don't know how long it's going to take. I know we're getting old and it can't take too much longer. And I see by world events, it can't be much longer. Because we're on the verge of World War III, breaking out almost any time, maybe within a few months. And certainly, not maybe World War, but war in the Middle East and then a coalition of people against America. Because the beast and the false prophet have to combine to kill the great whore, and that's America, essentially, maybe Britain included with it. That's what Ezekiel 16 says Israel would be. Not the Catholic Church. They may be the false prophet or be involved with it, the false religion at the end. (coughs) But the great whore that was with was the wife of God and is not anymore is the great whore that departed. Catholic Church did not go away from God in whoredom. That's where they were raised up to start with. But it's been Israel who's gone into whoredom from God. Verse 10, O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Is this just going to go on and on and on? Is there an end to it? Why withdraw you your hand, even your right hand? Pluck it out of your bosom. He says he's hit it like Napoleon had in, in his sh- coat. Take it out. Extend your hand to us. That's the way we feel, isn't it? The whole church looks around and tries to figure out why has this happened? And yet wasn't it all laid out right here in this book? We began to see it through the minor prophets first. And then we saw that the story was through all the prophecies of exactly where the church is today and what the answer is. How God is going to solve the problem and how He's going to finish His work. It's all in there. The church just doesn't see it. You know, I don't think there's probably anywhere in the church, maybe there are a few little individuals here and there that even recognize what the job of the two witnesses is. They don't get it at all. They don't see that their job first is to leave out the court of the Gentiles, not preach to the world, but to examine the altar and them that worship therein. That it's about the church first and feeding all seven churches, the seven candlesticks there in Zechariah 4. The first job is to the church. The church is what has been devastated first. The church is what needs God worse than anybody else. That's where the attention has to first go. I never heard that in Worldwide, did you? I haven't heard it being preached since Worldwide, have you? Well, yeah, right here. But I don't know of any other place. Now, there may be someone somewhere who understands that. It's only after the church has been gathered and the temple built. And Jerusalem restored that the abomination is set up in the temple of God. Not a Jewish temple somewhere. And the tribulation starts. The church has to flee to the mountains. And the two witnesses then go to preach to the world. That's where we always picked up the story. Tribulation starts, the witnesses go to the world. We never saw what the church has to do first. Why? Because Worldwide was not the one that had to do it. They didn't need to understand that. Herbert Armstrong saw a glimmer of it. He told me in 1981 that he was a belt, And I do believe he was a type. But certainly not the final and the powerful type the Zechariah 4 talks about by any means. That has yet to be done. And he didn't preach the gospel to the world as a witness and then the end come. People still try to cling to the idea Herbert Armstrong was the final Elijah. No, he wasn't. And he didn't restore all things. We've seen a lot of things restored since then. And I think we're going to see Zion and Jerusalem and the cities of Judah restored physically on this earth. A temple built and Jerusalem built where it has been desolate for many generations. And it will stand. Is a light and a testimony to the whole world. And that has to happen before the final witness against the world because they will reject the temple of God and the true Jerusalem. They will. Who understands that? Very few. And I think they're the ones who have to be the beginning of it. And that will increase pretty rapidly until about 10%, a remnant of the church, come to build in the temple. Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Pluck it out of your bosom. That's what Zechariah 2 says Christ is going to do. Let me go back there and read that. It doesn't say it exactly in those words, but it's essentially the same thing. Into Zechariah 2. If I can find Zechariah, it's right back here somewhere. I don't refer back to these because it would take years to go through the Psalms if we went back to all the things that tie in with what we're reading there. But it's, it's saying the story again. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 2, Zechariah Be silent, O all flesh. Before the eternal, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. He is going to come back, he says, and dwell with us in the original Jerusalem. I didn't say whether it would be physical or not, or whether we could see him. But he says he's going to be with us. He'll dwell with us. And he will rise up to do his final work. And that's what the plea is for here in verse 11 of Psalm 74. For God is my King of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Now that's what we're involved with, is salvation here, isn't it? So this is talking about now. It's talking about the church. He didn't even offer salvation until the early New Testament church. So this was written as a prophecy long before the New Testament church started. Only a few are mentioned in Hebrews 11 as being a part of salvation. But the end-time church is the primary one. You did divide the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the dragons in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces. It gave him to be food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You did cleave the fountain in the flood. You dried up mighty rivers, backed up the Jordan. So he's saying, you know, if you despair and you think God isn't going to open his hand and take it out and reach out to us, you're wrong, because he's done it in the past, and he says he'll do it again. Your, day is your or The day is yours. The night also is yours. you prepared the light and the sun. So lest we get discouraged by saying, how long, O Lord? How long does this have to go on? He says, remember the things God has done of old. He's going to do it again. You have set all the borders of the earth. You've made summer and winter. Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O eternal... And that the foolish people have blasphemed your name. (coughs) So he says, we were slipping away. Now you're bringing us back. Help us understand. Help us look to you. Oh, deliver not the soul of your turtle dove unto the multitude of the wicked. He refers to the church as a turtle dove in the Song of Songs. He says, I'll come to my people on the time the turtle dove sings in the spring. He's coming in the spring. Probably Passover time. Joel talks about how he will deliver his people and begin to bless them in the first month. We don't have to review all that, but it's tied together with this. Forget not your congregation of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, the commitment, the agreement that he made with us. He will do his part. We are the only possibility of failure. We have to do our part. Because he's promised he will do his if we do ours. So respect that covenant. Our plea is, for the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty, of violence, and neighbor not loving neighbor as oneself, but treating them despitefully and misusing and abusing one another. Oh, let not the oppressed return ashamed. Us. Don't let us in the long run be ashamed. We've been oppressed. We are oppressed. We're oppressed by Satan. We're oppressed by the world around us. We're oppressed by our human nature. Let us not be ashamed forever. But let's rise above it, he's he's saying. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Isn't that what Christ said? Beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The humble, the meek, the poor in spirit, and so on. Arise, O God. Plead your own cause. (laughs) You know, God is the one who has to show His cause. He's the one that has to show His power. He's the one that has to let them know from the east to the west who He is. We can't do it. Nothing you and I do here is going to impress anybody, let's face it, okay? It is going to take God's mighty hand. It will be to His glory if He can use... Weak people, base people like us, to do something. It will be to his glory, not ours, for sure. Look at us, brethren. Look at us. Sometimes we do, and we criticize and condemn and talk about one another here because we can see weakness. We can see fault. We can see problems. Can't we? Do we need to judge and condemn one another for it? Or do we need to say, Come on, brother, let's get it together. Let's work together to be different than we are. Not condemn one another because we are not what we need to be. It's easy to put each other down, it's easy not to show the love of God to each other. It's hard. To treat each other with love and mercy and kindness and gentleness and respect. And help each other be what we need to be instead of pointing out what we ain't. Okay? Don't let us be ashamed. Arise, plead our cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Forget not the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those that rise up against you increases continually a more and more ungodly world that we have to deal with it's not easy so there's a plea here for god to take care of us and he will so let's stop there for today